Hello again, all my fabulous listeners, and thanks for coming along to another episode of the Glow West podcast, where we chat all about the wonders of sex, sexuality, and the body. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and I'm always delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society, and of course, me with the sex podcast. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It does help keep the mics up and running. Or if you want to help spread the word about the podcast, you can pop over to Apple and Spotify and rate and review. And if you want to get in touch, the Instagram and Twitter is at Glow West Podcast. So we had Aoife Jury on the podcast before and she spoke about porn addiction. But sex addiction is a whole other um, kettle of fish, I suppose, kettle of sex or something like that. Um, And we do need to have a look at that as well because, you know, there's a lot of conversations about it we might see in the media. And it can get a little bit confusing to try and figure out what's actually going on. So I have a perfect guest here today with me in order to break this down a little bit first and figure out what's really going on behind the headlines and the tweets. So today I'm talking to Silva Nevis who is a COSRT accredited therapist. So that's the College of Sexual and Relationship Therapists. And he's also a UK CP registered psychosexual and relationship psychotherapist and a trauma psychotherapist. He is a pink therapy clinical associate and he works in his busy full-time practice based in central London and online. He's also an accredited clinical supervisor and is a course director for CICS, which is the Contemporary Institute of Clinical Sexology. Silva is the author of Compulsive Sexual Behaviours, a Psychosexual Treatment Guide for Clinicians, which was out in 2021. You can find that via Routledge. And he is also a member of the editorial board for the leading international journal Sex and Relationship Therapy. Silva speaks internationally on topics of sex, relationships, LGBTQ plus issues and trauma. And we're absolutely delighted to have you today, Silva. How are you? Hi, thank you for inviting me. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good, 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 good. We are surviving another COVID wave, but we are we won't mention that. That's yeah. Let's talk about something more fun. Or maybe not fun. <laughs> Let's see where we go with this. Um so you have a lot of credentials in this area, which is really good because one of my bugbearers and listeners will know that I really don't like when people say they are something and they don't necessarily have the qualifications to back it up, but you have so many qualifications you're an, like an ultimate sex nerd it's, it's a massive part <laughs> of your life there so yeah so you a busy job I would imagine very busy yes yeah, very much high, high in demand all of us actually yeah yeah well which is good on one level that people are actually realizing that you're out there and that they are coming towards you for help rather than suffering alone and not knowing where to go so one, one good thing about being busy I suppose So talk to us about sex addiction, not an accepted term in many ways, very controversial in others, but at the end of the day, there might be people suffering behind it and trying to figure out what's going on with them. So how, what is sex addiction the way the media describes it, first of all? Well, it describes a sexual behaviors that are unwanted and but that they are repetitive and people often don't know why they do those behaviors that are repetitive and causing problems in their lives. So broadly, this is what people struggle with. And they often use the term sex addiction because it's the term that they hear about everywhere. And so that's the term that they use and they come to therapy for that. Okay, okay. So so having the kind of sex that isn't really all that satisfying, it's just there's something else kind of going on driving sex rather than just the simple urge for pleasure or something like that. Yes, often people say that um, they, they 
keep having multiple affairs, for example, or they keep having sex outside of their primary relationship. So, you know, cheating, you know, behind the partner's back, and they just do it on a regular basis all the time, and they just don't know why they do it. And so that's usually uh, the presentation. But some people that are not in relationships, often sometimes they might say, I just keep watching porn and I keep masturbating all the time, and it feels like it's taking over my life, and I don't know how to stop it. So those are broadly some of the, some of the struggles that people have. Okay, okay. And I know a lot of people joke about things like addiction of, oh, I have a, you know, a, a Coke addiction, as in the soft drink addiction. And obviously, that's not really the case. But sex addiction, people might say, oh, I'm so addicted to sex, like this is a but it, it, there's actually a lot of hurt and trauma behind that jokey kind of label, isn't there? Yes, there is. Um, it, it is a, a term that's used a lot, because that's what people know about it, they can put that label on, on, on their struggle. But we know that clinically, we know that sex addiction is not um, really a thing, clinically speaking, because it doesn't meet the criteria for an addiction, as far as we know at the moment. At the same time, people in the public, they will use the word addiction very loosely for different things. And we hear that all the time. People saying, I'm a chocolate addict, I'm a Netflix addict, I'm a whatever addict. It's a word that's just thrown about a lot. And it doesn't, it's not, of course, the public doesn't talk with a clinical language. So, you know, when I'm not a therapist in my personal life, I'm very happy to say, I'm a cheese addict. You know, I really am. And what I mean by that is that I just love it very much. And sometimes I overdo it. And that's what the public talks about it in, in terms of Netflix addict or cho- chocolate addict. When they say that, they mean I enjoy it and I overdo it sometimes. But when it comes to uh, sex addiction, people use that term because it's a real, real problem for them. They really struggle with it. And so they, they, they feel that um, they need to come to therapy for that. But the problem with, with the term, actually, and that's why there's such a debate, is because the word addiction, when it's something to do not about, you know, I, I enjoy something and I overdo it a bit too much, but something like it, this is really causing problems in my life, it means that it's associated with the pathology language and the disease language because addiction clinically is actually a disease and it is causing tremendous big problems in people's lives in the context of the real addictions that we know of which is alcohol and drug addictions so so it's not it's not um and the reason why there's such a debate and for me certainly what my position is that i don't think that we should use a disease word and a pathology word when clinically uh, it's actually not that. Okay, so that's interesting. So it, it, talk to me about the, the hard sub- substances part. So obviously things like alcohol or drugs, like that's a substance that is actually being put into your body and, it, you know, impacting your your organs and, and maybe your brain on that level. So what we're saying there, that, that sex isn't quite that same thing. Like that addiction isn't just going to be the same as that physical substance in your body. That's right. Yes, because when you have a, a substance that's outside of your body that is introduced to your body, um, your brain is not naturally able to to survive that in its in, in its natural state. So your brain has to uh, readapt to survive that um, substance that is not meant to to be there. But with sex uh, and relationships and anything that's to do with human contact, um, there is a big cocktail of. Uh, chemicals that are released in our body from our brain, but our brain is actually designed to sustain that kind of chemicals. So your brain doesn't have to readapt and change 
when you have that kind of chemicals. But a lot of people that look at it from an addiction perspective, they say, oh, look, you know, this part of the brain flashes up when they, when they engage in sex, that must mean it's an addiction. But the thing is that that same part of the brain flashes up when you hug your baby or when you uh, eat a piece of chocolate or when you do something pleasurable. So, it, you know, but we don't say, you know, we don't say to people that they're addicted to hugging their babies. And, and, and sure enough, you know, if you take a baby away, even if it's just for a day, you know, the mother will feel a real physical pain of the, of the, of the distance you know, with the baby, yet we don't call that an addiction. And in fact, it is the same with, you know, love addiction is another word, sex addiction, porn addiction, those are not actually real addiction because it is the brain doing its thing when it comes to uh, the natural processes of what, of the feel-good chemicals that we have when we engage in sex. Okay, so that's where it gets complex because, yeah, like that's why we have sex because it feels good and relationships feel good if they're lovely and healthy relationships. But even, I suppose, trauma relationships have highs and lows as well. Um, but then, you know, if, what we see about that then is like comments like, oh, well, there's dopamine there. So is that the kind of chemicals that you're thinking of? Because that's a very headline grabber. So it's like sex addicts, um, you know, have are chasing dopamine hits but that's it's very simplistic to have that analysis there but it's like porn makes users crave dopamine therefore it's addictive yes this this is the the headlines and of course the the headlines are there for grabbing attention of people so you know the headline the headlines are usually quite sensational uh, stories, but the the thing is with dopamine is that it just does its thing, and the and, and yes, when we do something pleasurable, when we do something that we enjoy, we get a dopamine hit. But that happens in any activities that we do, and it doesn't make us uh, chase it or crave it in a way that is a, a diseased or pathology way, because in some ways we all chase the dopamine in some ways or another because that's what keeps us evolving and moving the uh when when the our ancestors the cavemen suddenly decided discovered fire you know there was a big dopamine hit oh my gosh something new something exciting and then we can do new things with that that makes them feel good and since then we've been keeping trying to uh, invent new technology to improve our lives and that's kind of to do with dopamine as well because dopamine is to do with with um with the reward when we do something that we enjoy, but it's also something to do with learning. So we enjoy learning and then we enjoy to, once we've learned something, then we want to learn something, something new, do, do something. So, and that's also part of novelty seeking. And all of that is part of our human nature. So, you know, if we all chase dopamine, then are we all dopamine addicts or are we just having the life that is congruent with the way that our brain works? Yeah, the, the way we've evolved to work. I mean, we probably get dopamine hits at work all the time if we enjoy our work. So we're not, we don't say you're a work addict. It's just like, well, yes. you know, that's a healthy, normal thing. <laughs> yes, and of course, some people that love their work so much, they can just overwork sometimes. And, and then people will call themselves work addict. But again, work addict is not really a, a clinical term. It's just overdoing something that you might enjoy a little bit too much. And sometimes it means oh, uh, I'm not managing my diary very well with being available to my family, for example. Mm, yeah, a massive lack of boundaries as well yes. as, as part of that too. So then what is going on behind the headlines and behind that disease label? Like what's actually going on when somebody is feeling that they're engaging in sex that is actually causing them distress? Well, the, um, the only clinically approved uh, definition of it is 
compulsive sexual behavior. And what that means is that it is an impulse control problem, not an addiction problem. And that's very different, an impulse control problem compared to an addiction problem. Because it means impulse control means that uh, the repetitive behaviors are as a result of somebody not managing impulses very well. And it's not about the number of times you do something. It's not about needing to stop something. It's not about brain impairment. It's about managing impulses. And if you see that managing impulses, it's actually something that's quite difficult for all of us in some ways, because as human beings, again, part of our nature is that we are kind of impulsive in many ways. But a lot of us, we can, you know, fairly control it quite well, you know, depending on the day. But if you think about our relationship with food, for example, you know, we have impulses every day or, or most, most days. Sometimes we really, really want that donut, but we know we should have the apple today, right? And that's kind of that, that decision to think, oh, I really, really fancy that, but you know, I, I think I should, I should really do something else. And, um, and the, our, our relationship with sex, our hunger for sex, our desire, sexual desire, uh, whether we do it for a need that is, um, I'm horny right now, or, the, or an emotional need, I'm too stressed, so I'm going to go for the donut. This is, the, um, this is kind of a really, really quite similar to our hunger for food and our desire for food. So rather than comparing it with an addiction like drug and alcohol, which has been traditionally how sex addiction has been looked at is by the comparison to drug and alcohol back in the 80s when there was no sexology knowledge. Now we think actually, because it's an impulse control, we need to look at it from a different way. What else in our life uh, is, uh, has impulse control? Well, there are things like, um, like, like food or like um, anything else that we, we tend to have a pleasure from. And, and the reason for this, and the reason it's so difficult to have impulse control for us human beings is because impulsivity has to do with a thrill. It has to do with a pleasure. It's something that um, when, uh, when we want to regulate something in our life, like uh, some emotions, maybe some unpleasant emotions, if we have an impulse, it means that we can start to really uh, engage with something that's, that's thrilling. So then we don't feel the, uh, the unpleasant emotion so much. Okay, so it's like a, a, a cover up for something bad that's going on beneath the surface. Like, like, well, like there's so much emotional eating when it comes, if we're using the food analogy that like, you're not actually eating because you're hungry, you're eating because you're upset, or you had a bad day, or you've had a bit of trauma. Like, there, it's, it's not the donut, it's the emotion behind the donut. Exactly, yes. And if you think about it, then, then of course, when you put the topic of sex, there's so much more taboo attached to it and so much more morals, you know, uh, attached to it. And so people can start to really judge people about that. But if you think about it, you know, you, you, you can see so many movies where, uh, you know, the scene is that somebody's breaking up with somebody else and that person is, is in grief. And what, do you, what is the next scene? Them in bed with a tub of ice cream, right? And that's how they manage. And that is kind of almost like, um, accepted you know when you have a breakup you just eat the whole tub of ice cream but can you imagine replacing that with spending the day watching porn and masturbating suddenly oh that's become you know a lot of judgment comes with that that's wrong that's bad what do, what do they do that you know there's got to be something wrong with this person yet is the same kind of similar coping strategy we know that masturbation is actually very good for stress relief and for emotional regulation. Mm. 
So, yeah, and helps you sleep as well. So if you're going through sleep. a bad yes. time, like some sleep is good to help with exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there is there is some kind of um, um, uh, big judgment when it comes to sex. And unfortunately, some therapists are also uh, having judgments when it comes to sex and relationship, because in core trainings, we don't often have uh, adequate training on sexology. So, you know, people just, you know, do and try to, uh, understand the client's behaviors based on what they know and sometimes it's not sufficient knowledge yeah. but the other thing is with that is um, compulsivity and that's mm. different from impulsivity and compulsivity is not reaching a thrill but it's moving away from something and there's no pleasure in the moving above something so impulsivity can give you a, a pleasure the compulsivity is just doing something repetitively repetitively with no pleasure but so that you don't feel any emotional disturbance but compulsivity is repetitive. So it means that for compulsivity to exist, you have to have a chronic stress that you're trying to move away from. So impulsivity could be once in a while. You know, you have a rainy day, I feel the impulse to have chips, then I can think, do I want chips or should I have the tomato salad? But with compulsivity, you're gonna have chips every day, every day, every day, because the, you have an, a disturbance that is chronic. Every day you wake up and every day there is something unpleasant that's going on for you. So then you're gonna have the chips so that you don't feel the emotional, the, 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 the ongoing distress. Okay, but that, that's kind of, it's a massive cycle, isn't it? Because if you did have the chips, there, there's usually a come down afterwards, isn't there? Like a, a beating yourself up of like, God, I shouldn't have done that. Yes. And, and then you then feel you heavy. Feel yeah. yeah and then you do it all again because you feel bad and you know yeah. it's, it's so it's a vicious circle that and i can imagine then like chips are bad enough if you're eating them you know in that kind of way but then with sex you know you, you bring in things like risk you bring in pleasure you bring in stis you bring in you know a, a roller coaster of emotions because that's what sex does so how, how does that work? Because the, the compulsivity you're saying there is like to, to protect almost, you know, to kind of not deal with what's going on. But then if you're having sex, there's a huge risk of like emotion or physical risk or just like it seems like a lot of work, you know, to avoid that. But people will go to all sorts of lengths not to avoid what's going on in them because that's hard. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the to really understand, I, I believe to really understand compulsivity, you have to look at what is the function of it, and that's that's key, I think. And a lot of a lot of the time, because it's presented as such a problem, something that must be avoided at all costs, people are not curious about what is the gain of it. What pe what are people getting apart from the thrill of the pleasure? If it's compulsive, if it's truly compulsivity that, that it's done on a regular basis, there is another gain. And what is that? And often that's when you look at the, the reason for the gain, which is different from one person to the next, that you can actually really understand um, the nature of compulsivity, sexual compulsivity for that particular person. And often what you would find is that it's people feeling distressed in a particular relationship or something to do with attachment because in their, in their past they had disrupted attachment. And so then they will go for an attachment that is risk-free. And that would mean usually to see a sex worker, for example, because there is no other, other kind of a high stake risk of being rejected. And, or it could be cyber sex, or it could be pornography, because again, there is no, there's no risk of being rejected or having that attention um, in, in your attachment. And it's a lot harder to go to your partner for this, because with your partner, there's a high stake of, 
of having a heartbroken if your partner decides to turn away from you or decides to, to criticize you about something. Mm, okay. So there's like that, that fear of that loss of power and control behind that. I'm almost reminded when you're talking there of like the people who start up relationships with people on death row that like it's almost safe a safe way to have a relationship because you don't have to deal with like they're never getting out they're not going to kill you but like you actually have all the control behind them like you know you can send them money or write them letters and stuff but like you still get to say i'm in a relationship but it's on your terms only that that's we'll do we'll have to do a whole other episode on that topic but um that's just fascinating but yeah that it's safe it's just very safe yeah so there's there's fear underlying all all these emotions like and fear comes from trauma and you know we we don't understand trauma enough we're not trauma informed and like you're saying like therapists um in training don't get enough training on sex and let alone trauma and Mm, you know that's true I think in Ireland, we're only just like understanding the concept of intergenerational trauma as well. So um, how like how do people, you know, come to you and they're saying, oh, I'm a sex addict. Like, are they able then to like get past that label and and think actually this is really related to some kind of trauma and, and fear that they have? Yes, but it's very difficult because at the beginning when they come, um, they are full of shame. And usually that's because they are uh, their behaviors, the consequences of the behaviors is that they have been cheating multiple times on their partner. And often they will come to see a therapist after they got found out. And, and so it means that at that moment, they are facing maybe a relationship breakup, they are facing seeing the partner that they, that they love very much. Uh, being extremely, extremely de- upset and, and distressed by the discovery of the multiple uh, betrayals. So they have to feel, uh, you know, sit, sit in the betrayer's seat and at the same time, um, full of shame. So at the very beginning, people really can't see further than that. And, you know, what they want uh, at the very beginning is to say, I just want to stop the upset. I want my partner to, to stop to stop being upset and I want things to go back to normal. And so they are extremely desperate to stop the behaviors so that they can fix everything. And, uh, and that's where the sex addiction narrative fits very well because a lot of the sex addiction narrative actually gives that promise. You come to us, you do the steps and you will be fine again. Yeah, it's like and the 12-step program yes, of, of sex. <laughs> exactly, yes, you follow those steps and then you'll be, and, and then everything yeah. will be fine. And that is problematic because often, you know, people's life is not that and sex life is not about following steps, it's about having a deep, deep understanding of themselves and, and full erotic awareness. But to get there first, they have to get past some of the shame yeah. and and that's one of the one, one of the biggest problem really for compulsive sexual behaviors is that it does have a big impact on on partners and and because of course nobody you know cheating we know is is unethical and it's bad and it creates a lot of issues right so it's usually in my sessions at the very beginning i don't attempt to define what's going on i certainly don't attempt to diagnose them with one thing or another I try to just get them to sit with the shame and try to reduce it, but without colluding with the with the betrayals, obviously. And that can take some time in the first place. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And uh, like, because if someone's coming and they're in crisis and you're under extreme pressure, if your partner is going to leave you or, you know, you're about to lose your job or your house or your way of living, like that's that's really hard to then sit and go, oh, actually, what I thought about sex addiction is not. And it's really to do with this horrendously big thing that they're keeping inside them. Like that's 
a massive mountain for someone to climb in regular times but when someone's in crisis I can see how that would be extremely hard for somebody and I can imagine maybe is there a lot of dropouts then because people are just they're so stuck in the shame part of things that they can't make it to the further parts sometimes yeah sometimes they think oh gosh it's going to be such a long road and there's just not going to be any uh, soothing anytime soon and I said that's right and often they'll think that you know then they just would rather go to a 12-step programs for example um, instead of doing the the therapeutic work that is um, that is needed but you know it's to their own if that's what they prefer to do that's fine I do not recommend 12-step programs because I think it makes the problem worse over time but um those who do decide to stay because many actually say you know i not only do i want to save my relationship and my marriage but i also want to not do this again even if my partner lives i just don't want to do this again i want to really understand what's going on because i'm really in the dark when it comes to my sex life i just don't know what i do why i do what i do and that's really you know people describing um the the opposite of erotic awareness that's just the you know the um unawareness the complete unawareness of of the erotic processes and part of that is because we don't have sex education we don't have relationship education a lot of people don't don't know the erotic processes so at some point when clients are ready of course we do that and while the sex addiction kind of uh field are trying to teach people to move away from erotic stimuli to say, you know, avoid all of that and then you don't get triggered and then you'll be fine. That's kind of, you know, the typical addiction treatment. I actually do the opposite. I said, we have to face it. You have to become erotically aware, know everything about your erotic self. And if you do, then you can make the good decisions based on your awareness. But that's very, very different yeah, to the, the alcohol approaches as well, which is like you, you are always going to be a recovering alcoholic and you can never touch alcohol again. And that's like people like is it Demi Lovato and they say they're California sober, so they don't take hard drugs, but they take weed. Um, and, and they've gotten a lot of crit- criticism from that from people who are proponents of the, the 12 step program. So but like sex is really hard to say, I'm never going to get I'm never going to have sex again like that's that would be stressful for a lot of people and, and kind of pretty depressing yes and some of the sex addiction um, um goal if you will is about making that person monogamous again or making that person a good partner again and and again i disagree with that because sometimes actually when people face the erotic and become erotically aware they realize that monogamy might not be for them or that there is there is something that is missing in their lives and so the goal for me is not to make somebody monogamous again the goal is to for compulsivity to stop that's the goal of compulsive sexual behaviors really and and for compulsivity to stop you have to be erotically aware because compulsivity does not survive in awareness and that's really in some ways the the, the treatment that I that I offer um, but it's important also for clients, uh, for people that, that struggle with compulsivity, uh, se- sexual compulsivity, to not only think of themselves as the betrayer, because yes, of course, they are, they have betrayed their partners and they have caused a lot of problems because of their behaviors. But underneath, there is a, a big world of vulnerability, a big world of, of a reason, you know, there is a reason for that. So even though the, the uh, outcome unfortunately has has caused chaos in their relationships and in their lives you know it's really important for people to build up compassion and look at what's behind because otherwise 
um, if people stay with just the hard, you know, only at just the, the surface level, um, that's going to increase, or if not increase, at least at least maintain their daily disturbance. And, and so compulsivity is just not going to go away. Yeah, you're kind of stuck then. And I want to go back to what you said there about the monogamy part of things that like, you know, I've seen some research that says things like sex addiction and porn addiction are more highly believed in and, and advocated for in places where the the very strict social ideal is for heterosexual monogamous marriage um, at, at a young age as well. There might be a lot of religion involved as well, whatever religion that happens to be. So you've got those pressures of like, this is the correct way to have a relationship and to have sex. And if you have um, homosexual sex or lesbian sex or queer sex or non-monogamous sex, like, there's something wrong with you already. So therefore, if you are engaging in that, you're already starting from a basis of having decades of shame thrown at you. So you, you can kind of imagine like you're already traumatized if, if that's not the kind of sex that you want to be having. So you, you know how do you how do we deal with that of like you know maybe this is just a societal thing rather than a, a biochemical thing or a dopamine thing or something like that absolutely i think there is a lot to do with society and again because we don't have good sex education so that's part of it um but it is true that um a lot of people that call themselves sex addict and, and porn addict they do come from that's what we call heteronormative idea, which means that heterosexuality and monogamy is the gold standard and everything else is a bit weird. And, and therefore, if it's weird, it's got to change. And, um, and even for heterosexual people who may have a kink and are, are feeling extremely ashamed about their kink, even if it, you know, say like spanking, but they happen to be in a vanilla relationship, and they just want to put the kink away and they think it's, it's, it's bad and horrible. And yet they find themselves just going to a dominatrix for a bit of spanking. And that is betraying their, their vanilla partner. Then if the goal is to become vanilla again, um, then that can actually be really problematic because a lot of people describe their kink as part of their sexual orientation and definitely the erotic orientation. So then you've got to think, if you're going to therapy to try to stop your kink, to become vanilla again, to fit in your current relationship, are you actually asking a form of conversion therapy? And if that's the case, then that's pretty problematic for, for the therapist who's being asked to do that. And I yeah. think a therapist, yeah, I think a therapist, you know, we, we understand conversion therapy in the context of LGBTQ people. And, and fair enough, because this is when it's practiced mostly because the originally conversion therapy is about changing LGBTQ people into heterosexual people. So that's a very big problem, actually. And it's mostly done in religious settings. Yeah. Um, but um, in my view, I think that somebody who identifies as, as heterosexual and goes to see a therapist to eradicate a kink or a fetish, that could be quite close, in my opinion, to, to a form of conversion therapy. Okay. Okay. That's really interesting food for thought there because we, we, we don't think about conversion therapy in those terms, but when, when you're saying there, I'm reminded of people who, you know, I've read their stories online and they'll say, Oh, I, I, every 
year or whatever I just get all my kink stuff and I just throw it out and then because I just don't want to be that person and then I find myself restocking everything and I'm like first of all that sounds really expensive um to (laughs) have to keep going for that but it sounds like really stressful as well and like in that case is it like can it be said that actually maybe they're not kinky but they're using the kink to cover up for the trauma and in that case is it appropriate to not go conversion therapy but like to say I don't want to be this person or is it is there something else kind of going on there well because it's as you were saying there's a lot of uh, societal ideas a part of it first I would ask why don't you want to be that person what is so wrong about being a person who has a kinky side Mm -hmm. Uh, because as long as the kink is legal and consensual then what what, what is the, yes <laughs> then what is the problem yeah. and and often you will find that it's actually morality that comes up or things that they've heard along the way uh, that says it's wrong and it's bad and so some of the things and so, some of the some of the process would be how they can accept maybe how to accept that they have a kink and accepting having a kink does not mean that they have to do their kink every single time they have sex so some people do um, you know, for some people, the kink is very important, but other people, for other people, it can just be, you know, the cherry on the cake to, to, to do it once in a while, or even to engage uh, in their kink by themselves, if, if, that, if that's possible, or whatever. So there is always some ways, if people are open enough to integrate and accept the, the kinky side and and even even within the vanilla space you know we think that vanilla is is really completely different but there is so many diversities of vanilla of somebody identifying as vanilla it's not just one thing mm-hmm. and and uh, and and for some people they have to accept the diversity of vanilla sex they have to accept the diversity of of our erotic mind the human eroticism which is so vast and and varied and even some people who identify as vanilla in terms of sex they want to do in real life, they might actually have a bit of a kinky fantasy that they never want to do in real life, but they still have that's still part of their of their eroticism. So all of that is important to really be explored so that people can own own their their, their erotic process, and then being able to make sense with what they were, they are going to do with their behaviors and with whom. Mm. And, and you know yeah like there's lots of vanilla stuff out there and even like the fluffy handcuffs still count as like bondage but they might not be like hardcore bondage but it's still mm-hmm. like a little bit of a kink um yeah. when you're talking there I'm reminded of um I was writing about zombie porn and zombie sex recently and I wrote about um Chris Stava and she was saying that some people really want sexuality to be stable and they want it to be like this is it in my little box happy days like it this is what sex is this is what gender is I know everything there is to know about it but of course it's terrifying it's like the abject to realize actually it's not and sexuality is like this really like you know tricky little thing that like it doesn't stay stable and it doesn't always mean what we want it to mean and we don't always have the sexuality we want to have or you know don't want to have all those kind of things like we we struggle with the fluidity of sexuality but then how does sex addiction fit into that? Because, you know, you're all, it feels like it's almost like fighting against it. It's that same kind of fear of like my sex sexuality isn't this small, neat, tiny box and I can't explain it. But that still causes trauma because then you're, you're left figuring out like what is sex? It's too big a question for some people. 
Exactly, yes. And, and some people, they can experience it as, as uh, the compulsivity if they just keep doing something, keep doing something. They don't know why and, they are, and they're questioning what, what is that all about? So yes, if you have more of a sexual knowledge, um, you, you can understand a little bit more, you know, fit it in, in in some ways. People that wants to be in a tight little box and say, this is it, you know is not helpful because it's not realistic and again i usually i try to use the analogy of food so for example right now i know pretty much what my palate is in food i know what i like and i know what i don't like and other people might like something i don't like that's fine i can accept that but i don't know what i haven't experienced yet so if one day somebody presents me with a whole new dish that i've never tried before I might have a little taste and I might just think, mm, okay, that was fine for today. I don't want it again. I might hate it and it will never be part of my even awareness. Or I might think, wow, that's amazing. I never knew that those flavors could get together. And then it might become part of my palate and then it might develop as part of my palate. So what I know now today about my palate might be really quite different from 10 years time. And it's definitely different from 10 years ago. And because we keep, we keep living, we keep being human and we keep experiencing things. Mm. And that goes with the relationship as well. We experience different relationships when we, when we meet different people. So it's really not possible to say, I know exactly what, what I'm about and I'm not going to be curious about anything and I'm going to stay with that. And that is usually setting up issues in the future. So what I said to, to my clients, I said, you know, if you are becoming truly erotically aware and you are keeping in touch with it for the rest of your life, then you will not get relapses <laughs> because, because you, 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 will, you will keep in touch and you will be able to move, to move with it and to keep being curious about it. And because relapse is basically the, the resurgence of an unwanted behaviors, but we have unwanted behaviors in the context of sexual behaviors because we are not aware of what's going on for us. Mm. And, and that awareness is really important. That's part of the key. But it's been used as an excuse sometimes. And I remember Harvey Weinstein that when he was, um, I don't say discovered because it was kind of an open secret, but it became more known that he was just abusing people left, right and abusing women left, right and center. Um, and then he went to um, sex addiction rehab. And it, it just feels like it's just the go to excuse. But like that wasn't sex addiction. That was just like he's just that was that was sexual offending yeah that's very different and that's another thing about the sex addiction story uh, that i really dislike is the conflation between compulsive sexual behaviors and sexual offending most people who have sexual uh, who have compulsive sexual behavior problems they engage in consensual sex with other consenting adults that is completely legal sexual offending in my opinion, is something completely different. And when people sexually offend and go to a sex addiction clinic because it's less harmful for their career to say, I've got sex addiction, rather than to say, I'm a sexual offender, then, then that's when the, that confusion between the two gets perpetuated. And the sex addiction feels like that because they, they like to, to keep the fear going for people to say, oh, if you watch too much porn, you might become a sex offender in the future. And that is not actually at all what we see in, 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 in research and studies, but that's a fear that people use to get people into their clinics. Yeah, which is um, very unethical, shall we say. But um, <laughs> and, and that... Uh, 
you know, you know, on the note of, of things like sexual offending, like, are, is there any research out there to, to show connections between if someone has been a victim of sexual trauma, that they, they're more likely to go on to, to, you know, to feel that they're um, a sex addict or a porn addict? Or is there something there? Any kind of tenuous link? No, not really. Uh, yes, strenuous link, definitely, but nothing that's, uh, that is very solid for us to make any claims like that. So, you know, we, there, there is no link, there's no proper link between sexual abuse and kink. Uh, people make the link, people talk about this, but it's actually, there's, there's actually no real solid link with that. So it's, we, can't, we can't claim that. And the same with sexual abuse and becoming a sex offender. There's no real link and same thing with people with compulsive sexual behaviors that goes on to become sex offenders also there's just no link in fact what we find is that most people who go to who watch porn and they suddenly they click on something that they find uh disgusting or morally wrong they usually click away within seconds so uh the people that stay usually is because they have a predisposition mm -hmm. to actually like that you know that's that's something that shows up on their on their erotic space and it's not, it's not something that the porn gives or causes it's something that that is usually already there okay. and so uh, you know people that say um violent porn causes violence usually that's that's not the case the, the case is that somebody's already interested in mm -hmm. violent porn and they will look for violent porns to to reinforce their uh dodgy ideas about women and then you know they might then uh, offend but yeah, that's yeah. a very very different story from most people who um, really struggle with compulsive sexual behaviors. Those people are not offenders and uh, they are just having sexual behavior problems, yes, okay, which is yeah. quite different. Which is quite reassuring, I suppose, to, to hear that, um, you know, because I'm sure people are struggling and they're wondering, oh my God, am I going to become the next Harvey Weinstein? Because that was blasted everywhere in the media. Yeah. Um, but that was like, he just used sex addiction as an excuse for his misogyny. Like, is there, do you find that that misogyny comes into this or is it more about that person themselves like they're not projecting misogyny or anything or or are there links there yeah. certainly in my own practice i find that most of most people that come to me with compulsive sexual behavior and oh i'd like to say also it's not just men you know i have women who come to me with compulsive sexual behavior we don't talk about women very much because god forbid talking about women and vibrant sex lives you know that's yeah. another oh my taboo. God. <laughs> women don't have sex oh of course yeah, not right <laughs> So, so, you know, I have people of, of all genders and all sexual orientations uh, coming to, to my practice, but most of them, they are gentle, lovely people with good values. Um, they are not misogynist and they're not narcissist. They are just people who, have, um, who are using sexual behaviors to cope with some unpleasant stuff and they don't they're not always aware what that is and usually it is attachment disruptions in childhood it can be tra unresolved traumas it can be unresolved sexual problems it can be unresolved issues in their relationship it can be uh, erotic unawareness com completely in the dark those are things that is mostly what comes up for people and once they do therapy and they get to see themselves and, and get to know themselves as the full person not just the behavior that they do or don't do uh, things change for them permanently and those people you know at the end of the process they are becoming the people that um, they find the authentic self you know they don't have to be different than they were originally it's just that they found they lost their way you know along the way and then they found it again that's really 
most people with compulsive sexual behaviors. Of course, there are going to be, there's, there's a very small uh, percentage of people who will have narcissistic traits. And those people are people that say, I'm going to take the pleasure that I want and I'm not going to care about the consequences. You know, to, there are some people like that out there for sure, but they're not the major, they're not the, the bigger populations that comes from compulsive sexual behavior. And, and of course, there are going to be some people who will have some misogynistic ideas and, and that will reflect on their sexual behaviors. But again, that's not the most, um, the, the bigger population with compulsive sexual behaviors. And usually for people with, uh, you know, narcissistic, narcissistic traits, well, that is something to do with uh, attachment disruption too anyway. Um, but, um, but then I would work with that. I would work with the, the person's narcissistic traits, not their compulsive sexual behaviors, because that seems to be one of the... Um, issue one of the main issue really and so and people who are misogynistic then I would work with that not work with impulse control because then you know if someone's misogynist they are more likely to just not care about what they do with other people not care about you know hurting the female partner so much so it's kind of like okay so maybe that's where to work this where to start yeah like you know you've just even outlined there like in that however long that was there like just the, the complexity of it but I suppose the underlying thing is like there's so much empathy needed and they need to have empathy for themselves as well but to find empathetic therapists like yourself that are actually you know adequately trained in this area and that don't shame them and I think when you said at the start that lots of therapists don't have training in that I think it's really important for anyone who is feeling that they are in need of help to like you know check the qualifications of the person that you're going to because not everyone can be qualified in everything and you want to find the right person um for you to to deal with your issues but I, I just love yeah that empathy I think it's a lovely note to end on because like we're all human we're all trying to deal with trauma and life and, and and everything else and sometimes it looks different for some people how we figure out all those kind of things and um attachment looks differently and sometimes it's a donut and sometimes it's an orgasm it's a whole different <laughs> kettle of fish there so um I, I I think yeah it's fabulous and, and it's fantastic that you're out there in the world um you know with your book and, and your your practice and everything it's absolutely fantastic so where can people find you if they want to you know check out your content and you know maybe book a session maybe I am on Twitter and that's uh, you can find my Twitter handles and uh, Insta- I'm on Inst- uh, Instagram as well um, my website silvernevis.co.uk and I've got another website called Sex Positivity UK and uh, I recommend that website that's not the website to to find me for a session but it's a website where I put some information some sex positive information and on that website there are a list of therapists as well who work um, similarly to what I, uh, I spoke about because um, you know now, now I'm, I'm training other therapists and so uh, the good thing is that there are more and more and more therapists now that are not working with the sex addiction model they're working with, with differently in a more kind of empathic way as you, as you were just saying so there is um, there is availability out there and uh, and there's more choices for people and so, of course, um, as you were saying, I think it's important for people that have issues with compulsive sexual behaviors to interview their therapist. You know, you were yes, saying about asking yeah. quali- for qualifications, but even if someone says, I'm trained in sex addiction, they can still ask more questions about it. Things like, you know, what would the treatment look like? Would the treatment look like an addiction treatment? Do you recommend 12-step programs, for example? Those are helpful questions to, to figure out 
uh, whether that's going to be something for you. Some people do want that kind of that kind of treatment, but it's good to know that now there are many other many more therapies that provide treatment that are not based on 12-step programs and addiction. And so that means that for the people that want to be treated differently with more of a sexology um, um, background, then they can come to that website, Sex Positivity UK, and, and find a suitable therapist. Fantastic. So lovely that we live in a world where options like that are out there. So thank you for putting that out there in the world. We link to it in the, in the show notes as well. Um, so this has been amazing. Thank you so much for, for doing that and, and, you know, bringing some awesomeness to people's lives and, and putting them on that right track um, afterwards. So, yeah, thank you so much for today and for the work that you do. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. And thanks Mil, to all my listeners. Um, as you said there, you know, if this is something that, that you are experiencing where you have any kind of distress about your sexual behavior, do please reach out for help. Um, so his website will be linked in the show notes. So you're not alone. There is awesome support out there for you, whether that's now or next week or next year, whatever it is, whenever you're ready, there are people out there to listen to you. So thanks Mil, to all my listeners and I will chat to you next time.